Pandora's box is a classic tale of Greek mythology. The first woman, Pandora, was given a box. And with it, she was given orders not to open it under any circumstances. But the old girl, she let her curiosity get the best of her. And when she popped the top, she unleashed this hideous suffering that has besieged humanity ever since. Pandora's box. Well, King Solomon opened Pandora's box for the nation Israel. During the reigns of David and Solomon, Israel reached unprecedented heights. The Hebrew kingdom dominated the world. But after Solomon's sin, the nation was never the same. King Solomon was fond, you see, of exotic women. He filled his harem with these foreign honeys who introduced him to false gods. Soon, idolatry filled the city of Jerusalem. And though the book of Ecclesiastes seems to suggest that Solomon repented toward the end of his life, nevertheless, the damage was done. Pandora's box had been opened. And for the rest of Hebrew history, the nation will struggle with this sin of idolatry. It took just one generation after Solomon for civil war to rock the kingdom. The Davidic dynasty reigned in Jerusalem over the southern tribe of Judah. Solomon's son, Rehoboam, sat on the throne. But the northern ten tribes, or Israel, rallied around a man named Jeroboam, a man who committed a dastardly deed. Rather than encourage his people to worship in Jerusalem according to God's law, he worried that their trip south might reforge an alliance with the Judean king. And so he created an alternative religion. He didn't want to lose Israel's allegiance, so he created this compromised religion. He set up golden calves in Dan and in Bethel at the north and south of his kingdom, places within his own borders. And he encouraged his people to come and make their own sacrifices and have their own priesthood and celebrate their own feast days. It was a religion of convenience and a religion of compromise. It was a politically inspired religion, not a divinely inspired religion. And as far as God was concerned, it was just plain old idolatry. And as a result, in chapter 14, God's judgment falls on the house of Jeroboam. Verse 1. At that time, Abiah, the son of Jeroboam, became sick. And Jeroboam said to his wife, Arise and disguise yourself that they may not recognize you as the wife of Jeroboam, and go to Shiloh. Indeed, Ahiah the prophet is there, who told me that I would be king over this people. Now back when Solomon was king, Ahiah had predicted that the kingdom would be ripped from Solomon's son, and that it would be turned over to Jeroboam, and that Jeroboam would ascend to the throne of the northern kingdom of Israel. Obviously, Ahiah's prophecy had come true. Jeroboam's mind is spinning, and he starts to think, well, maybe Ahiah can predict the outcome of my son's illness. And so the king sends his wife on an undercover mission to inquire of the prophet. It's odd. Though the king expects the prophet to see into the future, it doesn't dawn on him that if he can see into the future, he can probably see through a flimsy disguise. But nonetheless, he tells his wife to disguise herself and go and see Ahiah. He also says, take with you ten loaves, butter up the prophet a little bit, some cakes and a jar of honey, and go to him. 
He will tell you what will become of the child. And Jeroboam's wife did so. She arose and went to Shiloh and came to the house of Ahiah. But Ahiah could not see, for his eyes were glazed by reason of his age. I'm thinking maybe he had cataracts. Just his eyes were glazed. By this time, the prophet is an old man. He's a seer who can no longer see. Now the Lord had said to Ahiah, Here is the wife of Jeroboam coming to ask you something about her son, for he is sick. Thus and thus you shall say to her, for it will be when she comes in that she will pretend to be another woman. The Lord told him all this ahead of time. Ahiah didn't really need to see, did he? His decisions weren't based on sight after all. He relied on the voice of God, not his own vision. A good idea for you and me. The old prophet walked by faith, not by sight. And so it was when Ahiah heard the sound of her footsteps as she came through the door, he said, Ahiah doing? <laughs> you get it? Ahiah said, Ahiah doing? Mrs. Jeroboam, come in, wife of Jeroboam. Why do you pretend to be another person? For I have been sent to you with bad news. Go tell Jeroboam, thus says the Lord God of Israel, because I exalted you from among the people and made you ruler over my people Israel and tore the kingdom away from the house of David and gave it to you. And yet you have not been as my servant David, who kept my commandments and who followed me with all his heart to do only what was right in my eyes, but have done more evil than all who were before you. For you have gone and made for yourself other gods and molded images to provoke me to anger and have cast me behind your back. Therefore, behold, I will bring disaster on the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam every male in Israel, bond and free. Jeroboam will be cut off from all his subjects. He will cease to rule. Now, it's interesting. This Hebrew word that's translated in verse 10. How many of you have the old King James Version? Okay, you see this. The Hebrew word translated in verse 10 to be male is actually a word that means one who urinates against the wall. That's what it means. So that the old King James translation of verse 10, and I'll put it up here on the board, says... I will bring evil upon the house of Jeroboam and will cut off from Jeroboam him that peeth against the wall. No, That's what it says, doesn't it, Charles? Yeah, that's what it says. And so here, males are identified as those creatures that peeth against the wall. After potty training three boys, this is also how my wife identifies the male species. Those that peeth against the wall. Well, they're going to be cut off from the house of Jeroboam. And I will take away the remnant of the house of Jeroboam as one takes away refuse until it is all gone. Every Thursday morning, they pick up my garbage. And so Wednesday night, I have to go and take out the garbage. And God is saying, I'm going to take out Jeroboam like I would a bag of stinking garbage. The dog shall eat whoever belongs to Jeroboam and dies in the city. And the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the field, for the Lord has spoken. 
The only memorial to be named after Jeroboam's son will be a brand of dog food. And in addition, a prophet gives Mrs. Jeroboam one more warning. Arise, therefore, go to your house, and when your feet enter the city, the child shall die. And if she was a true believer and a real mother, she probably would have never gone home. But she did. Ahiah's words to the woman continue in verse 13. And all Israel shall mourn for him and bury him, for he is the only one of Jeroboam who shall come to the grave, or in other words, die a peaceful death, because in him there is found something good toward the Lord God of Israel in the house of Jeroboam. 1 Kings chapter 15 verse 29 informs us that the rest of Jeroboam's family dies violently in the aftermath of a bloody coup. But notice Jeroboam's son, Abiah, is spared violence by a peaceful death. Notice this. An innocent child was the only good thing that God could find in the house of Jeroboam. And so rather than allow this child to grow up under his father's evil influence and reap its judgment, God went ahead and took him. It's interesting. Death spared a corrupting influence and a torturous death on Abiah. And this sheds light to one of the Old Testament's most troublesome issues. When God ordered Israel to conquer Canaan, over and over he told Joshua to take no prisoners, take no survivors, wipe out, slaughter the women, the children, as well as the soldiers. We read that and we think, wow, God is being brutal, isn't he? God is being barbaric. But you see, we forget how hideously corrupt and defiled Canaanite culture had become. They were characterized by this dark occultism and animalistic lewdness. Obviously, this is a call, only a call that God can make in His infinite wisdom. But God spared those Canaanite children from moral corruption and eternal damnation by their mass extermination at the hands of Joshua and his soldiers. It was a severe mercy on God's part, just as it is right here. Well, verse 14. Moreover, the Lord will raise up for Himself a king over Israel who shall cut off the house of Jeroboam. This is the day. What? Even now. For the Lord will strike Israel as a reed is shaken in the water. He will uproot Israel from this good land which He gave to their fathers and will scatter them beyond the river, beyond the Euphrates, back into the land of the Assyrians. Because they have made their wooden images, provoking the Lord to anger. And he will give Israel up because of the sins of Jeroboam who sinned and who made Israel sin. The demise of the northern kingdom culminates in the year 722 B.C. when the Assyrian Empire sacks the city of Samaria, Israel's capital, and scatters the tribes among the foreign nations. If you want to flash ahead about 200 years... 2 Kings 17 records Israel's final days. But understand, it goes all the way back to its very first king, Jeroboam, and his sin. Verse 17 takes us back to the present. Then Jeroboam's wife arose and departed and came to Terzah. When she came to the threshold of the house, the child died. Just as the prophet had said. 
And they buried him, and all Israel mourned for him according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke through his servant Ahiah the prophet. Now the rest of the acts of Jeroboam, how he made war and how he reigned, indeed they are written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel. And if you turn to 2 Chronicles chapter 13, verse 20, it says this of Jeroboam, The Lord struck him and he died. Evidently he was judged by the hand of God. Verse 20, the period that Jeroboam reigned was 22 years. So he rested with his fathers and then Nadab, his son, reigned in his place. Though Jeroboam reigned just 22 years, his evil influence lasted for two and a half centuries. From 1 Kings 14 through 2 Kings 17, the author of the history flip-flops back and forth between the northern kingdom of Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. Nineteen kings will rule Israel, and none of them will please the Lord. That's zero, zip, zilch, nada, nothing, no one. Of 19 kings, not one pleases the Lord, and that was largely thanks to Jeroboam. They all followed in the sin of Jeroboam. Once there was a woman who had twins, and she gave both the boys up for adoption. One son was adopted by an Egyptian family who named him Amal. The other was adopted by a family from Spain who named him Juan. Years later, Juan sent his birth mother a picture, and she remarked to her husband how she wished that she could see a picture of Amal. And her husband reminded her, said, Honey, the boys are twins. You know that. Sweetheart, if you've seen one, you've seen them all. <laughs> and that's how it was with the kings of Israel. All 19 were goons, man. If you've seen one, you've seen them all. 20 kings reign over Judah in the south. Of those 20 kings, only eight will gain the Lord's approval. But it's interesting, those eight good kings kept Judah going 135 years after the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. Their good influence. Well, 1 Kings 14 verse 21 shifts south. And Rehoboam, the son of Solomon, reigned in Judah. Rehoboam was 41 years old when he became king. He reigned 17 years in Jerusalem, the city which the Lord had chosen out of all the tribes of Israel to put his name there. Remember, the temple was the place where God put his name. The temple was the embodiment of God's name. It was the place that reflected God's nature. Now, his mother's name was Namah, an Ammonitess. Catch this. His mom was a pagan. She was an unbeliever, an Ammonitess. And the mention of her here might explain the actions of Rehoboam. You see, he had watched his father. Guys, did you know that your children are watching their father? Rehoboam may have watched his father Solomon worship at these pagan altars and bow down to these idols, and now he follows in his footsteps. Now Judah did evil in the sight of the Lord, and they provoked him to jealousy with their sins which they committed more than all that their fathers had done. For they also built for themselves high places, sacred pillars and wooden images on every high hill and under every green tree. Rather than worship the one true God, they worshiped idols. 
rather than worship in the one sanctioned place, the temple, in God's prescribed manner, the law, they set up these illegal altars, these unsanctioned high places. They set them up all over town where they worship their idols. Perhaps you remember the Cold War incident involving Korean Airlines 007, flight 007. The flight was headed from Anchorage to Seoul and was carrying 269 passengers as well as 29 crew members. After liftoff, it seems that the pilot put the plane on the autopilot. But a small mistake, a fraction off in the flight pan caused a disaster. A few degrees error at liftoff caused the plane to end up 310 miles off course in the end. It ended up sailing over Soviet airspace. And you remember the story, the Soviets shot it out of the sky and it crashed into the sea. You see, God knew the same kinds of dangers applied to spiritual matters. You can be a few degrees off your doctrine in the beginning, continue on that projected course, and end up way off the mark at the end. This is why God's law was centralized. This is why worship in the Old Testament was highly centralized. There was a single temple. There was a single priesthood. A manner to worship God. And all this was to safeguard against man's tendency to stray. It's interesting, the same exists today. There's still one place to worship God, and that's Jesus Christ. He is not a way or a truth or a life. He is the way and the truth and the life. God has made it very simple for us so that we can't miss it. And there were also perverted persons in the land. Many of the idols that Judah adopted were fertility gods. And these perverted persons were male prostitutes that performed lewd acts in association with the worship of these gods. They did according to all the abominations of the nations which the Lord had cast out before the children of Israel. Isn't this interesting? Judah became as evil as the Canaanites had been 500 years after possessing the land from the Canaanites and after driving out the pagans that had defiled the land, the Israelites are now embroiled in the very same sins God had used them to judge. Amazing. Verse 25. It happened in the fifth year of King Rehoboam that Shishak, king of Egypt, came up against Jerusalem. And he took away the treasures of the house of the Lord and the treasures of the king's house. He took away everything. Ripped him off royally. Solomon had stockpiled great wealth. Now only after five years, after he's vacated the throne, all of that treasure and all of that wealth is gone. Second Chronicles describes Shishak's raid and Judah's response in more detail. And we're going to save it until we get there. Egyptian archaeology, though, sets the date of this invasion as 925 B.C. He also took away all the gold shields which Solomon had made. You remember 1 Kings 10 verse 16 mentions 500 gold shields. 200 large, 300 small. The shields, of course, were more ornamental than they were practical. Gold is too heavy and it's too soft to really be used in combat. These shields, though, were show-off shields. They were meant to demonstrate Solomon's great wealth. Solomon, you remember, was the king of the bling. And here's the revealing detail. 
Neither Rehoboam nor any other Jewish king made any attempt to retrieve these shields. Shishak walks in, takes them off, and instead of going to get them, having the courage to go and get them, King Rehoboam is content to replace them with inferior substitutes. Then King Rehoboam made bronze shields in their place and committed them to the hands of the captains of the guard who guarded the doorway of the king's house. And whenever the king entered the house of the Lord, the guards carried them, then brought them back into the guard room. Here's Judah's decline in a nutshell. In five years, they went from gold to bronze. Now, there is some symbolism in this story that I believe applies to the church. Gold, you see, represents God's work. Man plays no part in the manufacture of gold. Whereas bronze is an alloy of zinc and copper. It's the result of man-made processes. Here is what has happened today in many quarters of the church. God's work, His timeless word, supernatural power, it's being replaced today with man-made processes. Gold is gone, and the church has become content with bronze. Churches today are trying to grow through gimmicks and self-constructed formulas and the latest marketing techniques rather than relying on the golden power of God. The church may succeed, but in the end, they're going to end up with an inferior, flimsy foundation. It's time for church leaders to get courageous and to storm the gates of the enemy and take back the golden shields, the Word of God, the power of prayer, the supernatural work of the Spirit. Take back those golden shields that have been stolen from us. Well, verse 29 tells us, Now the rest of the acts of Rehoboam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all their days. So Rehoboam rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David. His mother's name was Nama, an Ammonitess. Then Abiyam, his son, reigned in his place. 1 Kings 15 and 16 now begin the succession of kings that come after Rehoboam and Jeroboam. Rehoboam of Judah died in 913 B.C. and his son Abiyam ruled in his place. In the 18th year of King Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, Abiyam became king over Judah. He reigned three years in Jerusalem. His mother's name was Makkah, the granddaughter of Abishalom. Just three years he reigned. Solomon reigned 40. Rehoboam, 17. He reigns just three, just a blip on the screen. But he did some damage in those three years. He walked in all the sins of his father, which had been done before him. His heart was not loyal to the Lord, his God, as was the heart of his father, David. Abiyam was David's great-grandson, but that's where the relation ended. He followed after his father and grandfather's idols rather than the God of David. 2 Chronicles 13 tells us of a victory that God gave Abiyam over Jeroboam. But here's how the king thanked God. We're told, Abiyam grew mighty, married 14 wives, and begot 22 sons and 16 daughters. And remember, he only reigned three years. I mean, he's on Solomon's pace. 
with the 700 wives and the 300 concubines. In other words, Abiyam also added foreign wives to his harem against the commandment of God. It's interesting that Chronicles spells his name Abiyah, which means Yahweh or Jehovah God is my father. Yahweh is my father, Abiyah. But the writer of Kings spells it Abiyam or Yom is my father. And Yom was a Canaanite sea god, a false god. It's possible that he started out a true believer but then was corrupted by his wives his foreign wives, and changed his name to reflect the idolatry that he had embraced. Nevertheless, for David's sake, the Lord his God gave him a lamp in Jerusalem. It's interesting. Three generations later, God is still blessing Israel for David's sake. David was still a witness. He was still a lamp, giving out the light of God. And God blesses David by setting up his son after him and by establishing Jerusalem Because David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord and had not turned aside from anything that he commanded him all the days of his life. Well, except one matter, the matter of Uriah the Hittite. F.B. Meyer makes a very interesting observation. Pay attention to this. He says, How long after David's son had set did the light of his life glimmer over his house? God keeps his covenant and mercy unto thousands of generations We are probably all inheriting more than we know from the prayers and tears of those who have gone before us. I believe that's true. And notice what David did that made his life so special to God. Verse 5, David did what was right in the eyes of the Lord. You know, a lot of Christians serve the Lord as long as it serves them too. As long as it's good for them. Have you noticed that? You know, biblical morality makes good common sense. I think the threat of AIDS has made abstinence and monogamy an appealing option. And so, oh, I'm I'm faithful to my wife. Well, it's serving you too. But David did what was necessarily in his own eyes, but in the eyes of the Lord. In other words, David did the right thing even when it inconvenienced him. David did the right thing even when it didn't necessarily serve his own best interest. Are you that committed to the Lord? Do you what's right in the eyes of the Lord or just when it serves you? Well, he continues, And there was war between Rehoboam and Jeroboam all the days of his life. Now the rest of the acts of Abiyam and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Judah? And we'll study those acts when we get there. And there was war between Abiyam and Jeroboam. Remember, now you can look at your little chart and you can figure this out. But Jeroboam was still king in Israel while Abiyam reigned in Judah. And so Rehoboam's son inherited the animosity that existed between his father and Jeroboam. So Abiyam rested with his fathers and they buried him in the city of David. Then Asa, his son, reigned in his place. And thank the Lord for Asa because he turned out to be a great guy. In the 20th year of Jeroboam, king of Israel, Asa became king over Judah. And he reigned 41 years in Jerusalem. His grandmother's name was Maka, the granddaughter of Abba Shalom. Asa did what was right in the eyes of the Lord, as did his father David. And he banished the perverted persons from the land. 
and removed all the idols that his father had made. Again, the perverted persons were homosexuals, male prostitutes that were associated with the Canaanite idolatry. And Asa takes a public stand against two things, against idolatry and against homosexuality. Asa rightly discerned that these two sins are the most destructive for a society. You see, they strike at the foundation of civilization. Idolatry is an affront to man's most vital relationship, his relationship with God. Homosexuality undermines the next most important relationship in society, and that's the union between a husband and a wife. A society that promotes idolatry and endorses homosexuality is writing its own death certificate. Mark it down. Without God, there is no moral foundation for society. Without marriage, there is no social foundation for society. Asa had the courage to stand up against both. Now, I like what Asa does in verse 13. Also, he removed Maka, his grandmother, from being queen mother because she had made an obscene image of Azurah. And Asa cut down her obscene image and burned it by the brook Kidron. Now, evidently, both Asa's parents and grandparents followed after idols. And I know folks who would use the excuse... Wait a minute, man. Don't blame me. I'm just from a dysfunctional family. My parents and my grandparents, had. I'm just bound to have problems. Let me tell you, Asa also was from a dysfunctional family. His grandma. I mean, your, grand, your grandma's supposed to be a good person. But his grandma, no less, she worshipped this lewd image. She made this image to Azara. This was probably a phallic symbol representing the male organ. How's that for an ungodly heritage? And yet King Asa made the commitment to break the chain of family dysfunction. Rather than repeat the mistakes of his parents, he chose to start anew with God. Guys, maybe you were abused. And maybe because your dad abused you and his dad abused him and his dad abused... Wait a minute. Just stop it right there. You can break the chain. Just because you were abused doesn't mean that you have to be an abuser. The power of the Holy Spirit can set us free. You can overcome a family history. You can give your future lineage a fresh start. Asa did it, and you can do it too. Trust the Lord for his help. Years ago, Morgan Cryer, he had a song. I liked it. It was called Break the Chain. It goes like this. Sometimes sin is just a family tradition. It'll burn the family tree to the ground. Nobody wants to inherit the flames. You sure don't want to pass them down. And then the chorus. Cut the cord in the curse, stop the rain, the family sin will do you in, so break the chain. And that's my encouragement to you tonight. Break that chain of family sin and set your descendants free to follow God afresh and anew. Well, the one deficiency on Ace's report card appears in verse 14. But the high places were not removed. Nevertheless, Ace's heart was loyal to the Lord. 
all his days. And as you study the kings of Israel, you know, some of the bad kings did a few good things, whereas some of the good kings, you know, they made a few mistakes. Ultimately, though, they were all judged good or bad based on the attitude of their heart toward God. Asa, we see, wasn't perfect, but his heart was loyal. And that's what God is looking for in us. Not perfection, but devotion. Even when our feet stumble, God wants our heart fixed on Him. With that, He's pleased. Verse 15 tells us, He also brought into the house of the Lord the things which His Father had dedicated and the things which He Himself had dedicated, silver and gold and utensils. Now there was war between Asa and Baasha, king of Israel, all their days. And Baasha, king of Israel, came up against Judah and built Ramah that he might let none go out or come in to Asa, king of Judah. Now Ramah was on the border, the southern border of Israel and the northern border of Judah, only eight miles from Jerusalem. And here's what King Baasha of Israel built. Here's why he built Ramah. Asa's reforms had birthed a revival in Judah. In fact, it had stirred up a hunger in the people's hearts to worship God in truth and in spirit. And this hunger had spread even as far as Israel. Many in the north wanted to return to the true worship of God and forsake this religion of Jeroboam. They wanted to migrate south to Judah. Basha didn't like that for political reasons. He didn't want to lose hold on his people. And so what did he do? He built Ramah as a checkpoint to stop the exodus down to Jerusalem. The city of Ramah became Basha's version of the Berlin Wall. Keep his people trapped. Well, here's what happens. I'm going to summarize a few verses. King Asa buys the help of the Syrian king Ben-Hadid. And he attacks, Ben-Hadid attacks Basha's northern territories. Basha has to move north to defend himself, leaving the city of Ramah for Asa to dismantle. Here's the moral of the story. God always keeps the way open for those who truly desire to worship Him in spirit and in truth. Verse 23. The rest of all the acts of Asa, all his might, all that he did, and the cities which he built, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Judah? But in the time of his old age... He was diseased in his feet. Asa had a severe case of athlete's feet. I don't know what it was, but he was diseased in his feet. Poor Asa. Reminds me of the tombstone that was seen in Richmond, Virginia. This is how it reads. She always said her feet were killing her, but nobody believed her. I guess they could have put that on Asa's tombstone. It's interesting, 2 Chronicles 16 verse 12 makes an interesting comment on Asa's illness. It says, Asa became diseased in his feet and his malady was very severe. Yet in his disease, he did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. He only consulted the podiatrists. I wonder though, if us... He did not seek the Lord, but the physicians. Oh my, we've got an appointment this week with another specialist. We've gone from specialist to specialist to specialist. But have we yet to take our burden to the Lord? Have we yet to trust the Lord for His healing touch? 
Remember, the DRs and the MDs, they call themselves practicing physicians. They know more than we do. Only the Lord Jesus is the great physician. Hey, when you got a foot problem, man, don't go to Dr. Scholl's. See Dr. Jesus. You always have a foot up on your problem when you consult the Lord first. As the scriptures say, love the Lord your God with all your soul. Verse 24. So Asa rested with his fathers and was buried with his fathers in the city of David, his father. Then Jehoshaphat, his son, reigned in his place. Another good guy. Because of Asa's foot problem, I'm not so sure Jehoshaphat was looking forward to filling his father's shoes. But Jehoshaphat was also one of Judah's good kings. And we'll read about Jehoshaphat again in the last chapter of 1 Kings. In the meantime, though, we've got to trudge through seven chapters that focus on the terrible things going on in the northern kingdom of Israel. Verse 25. Now Nadab, the son of Jeroboam, became king over Israel, Asa, king of Judah. And he reigned over Israel two years And he did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of his father and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. And the assassins took aim. For then Baasha, the son of Ahiah, of the house of Issachar, conspired against him. And Baasha killed him at Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines, while Nadab and all Israel laid siege to Gibbethon. Baasha killed him in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place." Jeroboam's dynasty lasted two years after he was off the throne. Nadab was killed in a bloody and treacherous coup. And it was so when he became king that he killed all the house of Jeroboam. Wanted to get rid of all of his rivals. So Basha goes back and he kills all of Jeroboam's descendants. He did not leave to Jeroboam anyone that breathed or that peeth against the wall. Until he had destroyed him according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken by his servant Ahiah, the Shilonite, because the sins of Jeroboam, which he had sinned and by which he had made Israel sin, because of his provocation with which he had provoked the Lord God of Israel to anger. Of course, we discussed this back in chapter 14. God took away the house of Jeroboam like he would throw out a bag of trash. Verse 31. Now the rest of the acts of Nadab and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? And there was war between Asa and Basha, king of Israel, all their days. And in the third year of Asa, king of Judah, Basha, the son of Ahiah, became king over all Israel in Terzah. That was the capital at the time. And he reigned 24 years He did evil in the sight of the Lord and walked in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin by which he made Israel sin. And this is going to be a familiar refrain for the rest of the history of the northern kingdom of Israel. Every king will be guilty of adopting this alternative religion of Jeroboam. Chapter 16. Then the word of the Lord came to Jehu, the son of Hanina, against Basha, saying, Inasmuch as I lift you out of the dust and made you ruler over my people Israel, and you have walked in the way of Jeroboam and have made my people Israel sin to provoke me to anger with their sins, surely I will take away the posterity of Basha and the posterity of his house, and I will make your house like the house of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. 
Basha had mimicked Jeroboam's sin, therefore he will mimic Jeroboam's end. The dogs shall eat whoever belongs to Basha and dies in the city, and the birds of the air shall eat whoever dies in the fields. Basha's boys will become Alpo for Israel's dogs, just like Jeroboam's family had become. You know, with the likes of Israel's kings, their dogs stayed well fed. Verse 5. Now the rest of the acts of Basha, what he did in his might, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Basha rested with his fathers and was buried in Terzah. Then Eli, his son, reigned in his place. And also the word of the Lord came by the prophet Jehu, the son of Hanani, against Basha and his house, because of all the evil that he did in the sight of the Lord, in provoking him to anger with the work of his hands, in being like the house of Jeroboam, and because he killed them. It's interesting, Psalm 103, verse 8 reads, The Lord is merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in mercy. Notice that. God is merciful and slow to anger. But notice in these verses, He can be provoked. It takes a lot. You have to push. But if you push His patience long enough, and if you push hard enough, God will get angry. And God will bring judgment. And God will punish people. You can't read the Old Testament without coming to that conclusion. God is slow to anger. But He does get angry if you push the issue. Verse 8. In the 26th year of Asa, king of Judah, Elah, the son of Basha, became king over Israel and reigned two years in Terzah. Now his servant Zimri, commander of half his chariots, conspired against him as he was in Terza, drinking himself drunk, in the house of Arza, steward of the house of Terza, Eli is drinking himself drunk. I guess that's binge drinking. I mean, he's getting inebriated, and as a result, he becomes an easy target. For Zimri went in and struck him and killed him in the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, and reigned in his place. Another king of Israel gets assassinated. Have you figured out yet that when you get drunk, more bad stuff can happen to you than good stuff? Have you figured that out yet? <laughs> well, Elah, he figured it out the hard way. And then it came to pass when he began to reign, as soon as he was seated on his throne, that he killed all the house of Basha, murdered all the rivals to the throne. He did not leave him one male, neither of his relatives, nor of his friends. Now thus Zimri destroyed all the household of Basha, according to the word of the Lord, which he spoke against Basha by Jehu the prophet. For all the sins of Basha and the sins of Eli his son, by which they had sinned and by which they had made Israel sin, and provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. Now the rest of the acts of Eli and all that he did, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? In the 27th year of Asa, king of Judah, Zimri had reigned in Terzah seven days. And the people were encamped against Gibbethon, which belonged to the Philistines. Now the people who were encamped heard it said, Zimri has conspired and also has killed the king. 
So all Israel made Omri, the commander of the army, king over Israel that day in the camp. Then Omri and all Israel with him went up to Gibbethon, and they besieged Terzah. And it happened when Zimri saw that the city was taken, that he went into the citadel of the king's house and burned the king's house down upon himself with fire and died because of the sins which he had sinned in doing evil in the sight of the Lord and walking in the way of Jeroboam and in his sin which he had committed to make Israel sin. Zimri was the king who reigned a total of one week. After he had snuffed out a sloshed up Elah and then slaughtered the house of Basha, Zimri realized that he was not the people's choice. They wanted General Omri to be king. And so Zimri knew he was fighting a losing battle, so he committed suicide. He torches the royal palace and he goes down in flames. He was the victim of burnout. Suicide has been called the last resort of the man who dares not stand up to life. The last resort for the man who dares not stand up to life. Suicide is not the unpardonable sin, but it is a sin. It's the sin of self-murder. And it is a sin against God. For mankind was made in God's image and in God's life. And so for us to strike at God's image is a sin against God. G. Campbell Morgan referred to suicide as the ultimate action of cowardice. And indeed it is. If you're struggling tonight, if you are struggling with thoughts of suicide, please get help. Please get help. Because God loves you. God has a plan for you. And God doesn't want you to be overwhelmed by the feelings of helplessness that you feel. God does. There's no problem too great for God. He wants to help you. Suicide is not the answer. Now the rest of the acts of Zimri and the treason he committed, are they not written in the book of the Chronicles of the kings of Israel? What an ominous start for Israel. Of her first five kings, two were assassinated. One commits suicide after reigning for one week. Verse 21. Then the people of Israel were divided into two parts. Half of the people followed Tibni, the son of Ginnoth, to make him king, and half followed Omri. But the people who followed Omri prevailed over the people who followed Tibni, the son of Ginnoth. So Tibni died and Omri reigned. And King Omri will reign 12 years. He ruled seven years as sole sovereign over the northern kingdom. Now remember the south, in the south, Asa became king in the 20th year of Jeroboam. So if you're looking at your list, you can figure this out. Asa became king in the 20th year of Jeroboam, and he reigned 41 years. That means that Asa's reign overlapped the first seven kings of Israel. Judah is enjoying this remarkable stability. Israel is in a constant state of turmoil. Verse 23. In the 31st year of Asa, king of Judah... Omri became king over Israel and reigned 12 years. Six years he reigned in Tursa, and he bought the hill of Samaria from Shemir for two talents of silver. Then he built on the hill and called the name of the city which he built Samaria after the name of Shemir, owner of the hill. Omri's most notable achievement was the building of the city of Samaria. Later, Samaria will take over Tursa as the capital of the northern kingdom. 
You know, there's several features that made Samaria such a powerful city. First, since it was a new city, it was politically neutral. In other words, it had no tribal association and therefore it could serve as a capital for the whole northern kingdom. And then second, it was built on a hill 328 feet in elevation. And the elevation made it easier to defend against ancient armies. Well, history views Omri, by the way, as one of Israel's most successful kings. For years, the Assyrians actually referred to the northern kingdom of Israel as the house of Omri. But God had a different opinion of Omri. Verse 25, Omri did evil in the eyes of the Lord and did worse than all who were before him. For he walked in all the ways of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and in his sin which he had made Israel sin, provoking the Lord God of Israel to anger with their idols. And notice again the phrase, the way of Jeroboam. It was the evil religion of accommodation. God hated it, and yet Omri once again supported it. Verse 27, Now the rest of the acts of Omri which he did, and the might that he showed, are they not written in the book of the chronicles of the kings of Israel? So Omri rested with his fathers and was buried in Samaria. Once there was this drug dealer, and he died in a shootout. And his mafia family, they approached the local pastor and told him they would give him $1,000 to preach the boy's funeral. Of course, the good pastor refused. How could he say anything nice about a drug-dealing mafia member? Well, that's when the brother of the deceased offered the pastor $10,000. And so the pastor thought it over a little bit. And as he was taking the money from the brother, <laughs> the brother warned him. He said, now make sure you say that my brother was a saint. And so the pastor started his service. We're gathered here today to remember the vilest, meanest, evilest, orneriest man this city has ever seen. But compared to his brother right there, he was a saint. <laughs> as evil as Omri was, compared to his successor, he was a saint. For we read, then Ahab, his son, reigned in his place. Ahab will rule 22 years and they will prove to be the darkest, most wicked 22 years in the history of the nation Israel. In the 38th year of Asa, king of Judah, Ahab, the son of Omri, became king over Israel. And Ahab, the son of Omri, reigned over Israel in Samaria 22 years. Now Ahab, the son of Omri, did evil in the sight of the Lord more than all who were before him. And it came to pass as though it had been a trivial thing for him to walk in the sins of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, that he took as wife Jezebel, the daughter of Ethbel, king of the Sidonians, and he went and served Baal and worshipped him. When you refer to an evil, sinister, treacherous, plotting, conniving woman, what do you call her? A Jezebel. She was a royal witch. Well, Jeroboam had established a subtle form of idolatry. But Ahab and Jezebel, they pull out all the stops. They promote a no-holds-barred, blatant kind of idolatry. They introduce to Israel the evil system of Baal worship. It's interesting, the historian Josephus says that Jezebel taught the worship of Baal to Ahab. Jezebel brought with her to Israel the priests and the prophets of Baal. 
And then she supported their ministry from the coffers of the king. Jezebel's goal was to make Baal the God of Israel. In fact, according to 1 Kings 18 verse 13, Jezebel even launched a campaign in Israel to exterminate the prophets of Jehovah. This was a vile and a violent woman. Prior to the reign of Ahab and Jezebel, Israel flirted back and forth with Baal worship. But this demonic duo institutionalized and promoted this blasphemous religion among the cities of Israel. We're told, then he set up an altar for Baal in the temple of Baal, which he had built in Samaria. Moved the capital of Samaria, and there he built a temple to Baal to promote Baal worship in the capital. Baal worship was hideous. Baal was the god of the Canaanites, the god of nature. And the Canaanites believed that Baal controlled agriculture and thus the processes of reproduction. Baal's female counterpart was Asherah or Ashtoreth. She was the goddess of fertility and she was worshipped with all kinds of lewd and immoral sexual activities. Baal worship came with temple prostitution and child sacrifice. It was an awful, hideous evil. Verse 33 gets worse. Ahab made a wooden image, or they were called Asherah poles. It was a phallic symbol that stood for the wicked perversions of their fertility followers. This is why I said at the beginning tonight that Solomon opened up Pandora's box. Solomon's concessions led to Jeroboam's compromises, which led to Ahab's corruption. See, Solomon's slide never really stopped. And beware, this is how sin works in our lives. Little concessions lead to calculated compromises, which in turn lead to rampant corruption. Well, verse 33 sums up the evil of Israel's eighth king, Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. In his days, Hael of Bethel built Jericho. He laid its foundation with Abiram, his firstborn, and with his youngest son, Zegub, he set up its gates according to the word of the Lord, which he had spoken through Joshua, the son of Nun. Now here's your homework for tonight. Go back to Joshua chapter 6, verse 26. For there, Joshua curses the city of Jericho. He says, whoever tries to rebuild Jericho will bury the corpses of his son in its foundation and in the footings of its gates. This was probably a practice of child sacrifice to bury the child within the foundations of the building. This prophecy is now being fulfilled 500 years after Joshua spoke it. Another amazing evidence of the inspiration of Scripture. It's interesting, author Peter Stoner calculated the odds of this prophecy happening by chance to be one in two million. Astronomical. More proof of the Bible's inerrancy. Well, as 1 Kings chapter 16 comes to a close, the sun is hidden behind the clouds. This is a dark day. The family of Israel is at war with one another. Wicked men occupy positions of leadership. Israel is experiencing one of the violent, vilest moments in the history of the nation. But never fear. 
For it's in such dark circumstances that God now shines one of His brightest lights. For chapter 17 opens with the words, Elijah the Tishbite. Hang tight. The out of sight Tishbite is on sight, shining the light, filled with God's might, upholding the right, fighting the fight. And we'll study Elijah next Sunday night. All right.